Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So this is about the first ever tape only. Okay. Tape. No. So this is about cassette tape. Yeah, yeah. Tape. Okay. So this is... Notable. So this is this is about this is about the first only cassette tape only the first ever sorry <laughs> So this is about what is wrong with me So this is about the first ever cassette tape only shot Nailed it Nailed it got it got it on the third take <laughs> Welcome to Notable Episode five of season series two. Season series two, and I can't. Do you know what? <laughs> I've been listening to some podcasts recently, Elizabeth, and I've noticed yeah. that a lot of people have the same intro to every podcast. They've written it down. They've possibly even recorded one. What? That they Are you use saying all the we're time. Not professionals? <laughs> and I'm wondering, what should we do? Should we write one down, or should we keep this kind of vaguely awkward talking over each other free form <laughs> jazz intro that we do? I like it. Um, I think. We did write this down, didn't we? <laughs> no, we didn't, as you can tell. But that's what makes this the Cayman Islands and Bosnia's favourite for one week arts podcast. Uh, I'm Stuart McConey. I'm Elizabeth Holker. Shall I read you some of our messages this week, Stuart? Please do. It's heartening to know that yeah, people are getting in touch via social media, at NotablePod, and we're on Instagram as well, aren't we? We are, Notable underscore pod on Instagram. Okay. Um, so, at Twitter this, Luke Holland has been in touch. He said he saves his Notable Pods like Charlie did his Wonka bars. Oh, that's sweet. Thank that's you. nice, yeah. Thank you, Luke. I thought there was only... what? Oh, there was only a golden ticket, wasn't there, in the Wonka bar? There were, no, there were five, weren't there? Oh, were there? Five kids end up going. Veruca Salt, Mike TV, Charlie, oh, yeah, that's and, right. and two others that... I should yeah. know if this were a pub quiz, but I've done. <laughs> Skin Vehicles on Twitter says, by complete coincidence, he was listening to Big Science while walking his dog. Big Science and O Superman being Featured. the subject of one of the subjects of last week's pod. It was, yeah. Also, we've had a request. To stop doing it. <laughs> no, no joking, to carry on. A request to carry on. Good. So that's nice. Uh, Al Kitching, he says, hello, Elizabeth and Stuart. You often ask for ideas to investigate which we do, we do, don't we? So I wonder if I could suggest to you the story behind Tangerine Dream's 1974 concert at Ream Cathedral. So controversial, it resulted in a papal bull of excommunication. That good sounds heavens. like a good one, doesn't it? That does sound like a good one. I know they, they went through a phase of doing cathedrals because they famously played Coventry Cathedral and it was televised by the BBC and it's an excellent show. Wow. And of course, had lots of connotations for a German band coming to Coventry Cathedral. So we could do Tangerine yeah. Dream... In Maybe cathedrals. Do Tangerine Dreams cathedral gigs. Yeah. And we'll pair it with something complimentary. Yeah. And how it upset the Pope. Mm. We should say what notable is. It's that kind of thing. It's fascinating, interesting stories from music history. Not nerdy, we hope we hope it's not a it's not a musicological kind of thing. We're looking into mm. the fascinating stories from any genre of music, aren't we, in any era. Yeah, and against kind of their social and political and historical yeah. backdrop. 
And this week, I think you're going to kick things off by telling us a little, telling me a little. We are going to talk a little about one Edgar Varese. Edgar Varese, yes. So uh, this is a French-born composer, Edgar Varese. He actually spent the majority of his career in America, sometimes known as the godfather of electronic music. So this is before Stockhausen, before Pierre-Henri, who was actually the godfather of techno anyway. Everyone's got to be a godfather of something now, haven't they? Yeah. But anyway, Varese, he just about preceded all those other people who we often credit as being the source of electronic music. He kind of sits in the space between those towering figures in classical music who really changed the shape of European classical music. So people like Stravinsky, Schoenberg and Debussy. And then what eventually happened in the American avant-garde. So, uh, you know, if you consider that Europe and America continually pass ideas between each other, then he sort of carried the baton held by those European composers who were changing the way that music was written and who were looking, I guess, to worlds of more popular forms of music and what was happening in the art world as well to inform their works. And he passed it on to people like Cage and the Minimalists and helped sort of shift the focus in terms of what was going on on the international classical music scene and the avant-garde to the States. Yeah, yeah. As we often say with these characters, though, their influence often extends beyond the avant-garde and the world of classical music. And he also had a big impact on the worlds of pop, rock and jazz. And for people who don't know him, who perhaps aren't interested in classical music, who've never heard of Rez, these two stories might pique your interest. Uh, So firstly, one of his huge admirers was Charlie Parker. So we mentioned very briefly in a previous episode of Notable that Parker came before a number of revolutions in jazz, didn't he? And kind of paved the way for them to happen. He and Dizzy Gillespie expanded what was possible with jazz. So instead of just improvising, although, well, superbly improvising, I should say, uh, but over quite kind of simple chord changes, chord changes Mm -hmm. that might be rooted in more, you know, more of a kind of straightforward blues idiom, um, they wanted to explore harmonies and strange timings and rhythms and uh, key signatures and all that kind of thing. This was because, I guess, well, Parker was, he was a restless genius, Hmm. but he was also a big fan of classical music. And he was also really interested in what was happening in the contemporary music world at that time, especially in New York. How he found time for it, I've honestly Hmm. no idea because, well, his life was quite full, Charlie Parker, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And not with, not with dogs and Netflix, like my life, but stuff that we can't discuss now. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, he was still a big fan of Edgar Varese. Uh, It's thought that Edgar Varese was the man who inspired him to experiment with pitch and timbre, rhythm and harmony, and so changed the course of jazz and the episode that we did on on jazz, Stuart. I think probably what Varese does is, I mean, he's seen as the godfather of music concrete as well, isn't he? Because he starts to bring into classical music like non-musical instruments, doesn't he? Like... sirens and blocks of wood and stuff like this yeah yeah he's interested in pure sound isn't he yeah yeah absolutely um parker would follow verez around greenwich and he was always too shy to speak to him and then one yeah and then one day he finally kind of plucked up the courage and he went to verez's apartment and he said take me as you would a baby and teach me music I write only one voice I want to have a structure I want to write orchestral scores And then Varese said he would, but that weekend, literally that week, he had to travel to Paris to conduct a performance of his own work. And when he got back, Parker had already died. So fate obviously had other ideas, but yeah. That's interesting because Varese, 
really it was only in the last 10 years of his life wasn't it that people started to pay attention to his music he was the, he was a neglected genius wasn't he yeah he was for a lot of his life and it was only in the last few years of his life when he moved this, to Columbia Records, that people started to realise what a towering figure he was for a lot of his life. I think he had to m- make his money through other jobs, didn't he? Yeah. And then this is, well, this is, yeah, because this was 1955. Yeah. Um, the year that Parker died. And then the same year, um, another fan of his work, who would go on to do great things, Frank Zappa. And yeah. he was only 15 years old at the time. And for his 15th birthday, his parents let him make a long distance call, which is kind of an yeah. odd present for a 15 year old because I wouldn't have known who to, who to well, ring. This, well, should we just step back one bit? Because they, the reason he chooses to make a long distance call for his 15th birthday is because he's become obsessed with so, Edgar Varese. Edgar Varese, exactly. I love the story. Do you know the story about how he becomes obsessed with Edgar Varese? Go on. He's watching a programme about some, and the guy's called Sam something. I think it's Sam Goody, who is an American entrepreneur and who's on a show saying, I can sell anybody anything. All about marketing. I can sell anybody anything. And Frank Zappa's watching this as a kid, as a 14-year-old. And Sam Goody says, he says, I'll give you an example of what a great merchandiser I am. I could sell you this record. And he shows this record called Ionization by Edgar yep. Varese and says, this is just some guy banging on some drums. It's not music, but I could say, you know, I've sold copies of this. And Frank Zappa watching says, thinks, I like the sound of that record. Yeah, and he likes it. And he goes it. and tracks it down. He finds it in yeah. a record store, the complete works of Edgar Varese. And the, the guy gives it him with just the money he's got in his pocket, doesn't he? He's got yeah. $3.80 in his pocket. Yeah, and he, and he and becomes he says, a massive fan. And he becomes a massive fan. And then that's what you're, what you're saying, then... then when his mum says, what do you want for your 15th birthday? He says... A long distance call. Yeah. Because uh, he was living in California at the time. Yeah. And actually, he just guessed that Perez would live in Greenwich Village. Later in an interview, he said, well, I knew he'd live in New York because he was a weirdo. And so I imagine it would be Greenwich Village. And then he looked yeah. him up in the phone book and found his number. And that's how it happened. And he called him and Varez answered and they struck up a friendship, a correspondence. And Zappa then remained a champion of Varez's work really for the rest of his life, didn't he? I think the first time he rings up, Varez isn't there and his, his wife answers Louise Varez and says um, <laughs> oh, like he'll ring you back and they then they do like you said strike up a friendship they never actually meet do they, they no they, they correspond yeah and he sent him a letter didn't he that Zappa put up in his studio and kept there for the rest of his life the handwritten letter by, by Varez another lovely thing I think Zappa said was when he when he first got to speak to him he said what are you writing and, and um, Edgar Varez said I'm writing a piece called Desert Deserts yeah and Zappa's living, growing, in, living in the desert. And he thought, oh, fantastic. Like, he's writing some music about my hometown. Because he's oh, yeah, kid, yeah, but, but, yeah, but he, he became Zappa's absolute hero, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. And he credited Varese with giving him, you know, a blueprint and also the courage to do all those, all, all those things that defined his career. So meld musical styles and break free from traditional song structure and experiment with sound, as I'll come on to now. Um, Varez once said, and I love this, he said, to stubbornly conditioned ears, anything new in music has always been called noise. Yeah. And that is what all parents say about their children's music, it isn't is. it? To anyone who's not heard some, or is, you know... It's just noise. Yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Approaching something reluctantly, that's what they say. So I love that. I love that quote. It just goes to show how constantly, cur- you know, how curious he remained and how open to new things he was throughout his whole life. Yeah. 
And so as he says, just, all music is organised noise. He says, when people say yeah. that's just noise, that's all music is organised yeah, noise. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So just a little bit more about the man then. He was born in Paris in 1883. He had a bit of an unsettled childhood. He was passed around various family members and different parts of Europe. He spent time studying music in Italy, France and Berlin as a young person. So he got a very kind of multidimensional music education early on. He was invalided out of the French army in World War One. So mm. he went to America and this was a move that was also kind of prompted by a big warehouse fire that um, destroyed nearly all his music. But it was just, it was kind of a new start and he wanted this. He later said that he'd absorbed all that music I mentioned before that was written by these kind of incredible pioneering spirits in the classical world at that time. So between 1912 and 1913, when he was sort of age 19 and 20, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, Debussy's mm. Je, and Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra and Piero Lunaire had been premiered. And as people who subscribe to this podcast will know, they were all quite revolutionary pieces. Yeah. We've mentioned uh, Rite of Spring and Schoenberg before. So Fred had kind of seen and taken all this in, but this European revolution had happened and he was too young. He hadn't been part of it. And so he wanted to go and start his own and he moved to New York pretty much to do this his father had been an engineer so all those things you were saying about him wanting to incorporate kind of new instruments and new sounds Mm. into his music perhaps you know that was why he had this background in science and his father had kind of conditioned him to have an interest in science he'd supported his education in science as well as music so he arrives in America he publishes this work in 1921 called Amérique it's less about the place, more about kind of new frontiers. So it was a statement of intent. I listened to it this afternoon and Terry hid under the chair. <laughs> That's how kind of... It, new listeners should be aware Terry is a dog. He is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's unsettling. It, like you say, there are all these sirens and kind of whooshes. It was written for around 40 different percussion instruments. There's a lion's roar, a boat yeah. whistle... There's a duet for drums and maracas, this kind of Morse code clanging with the anvils halfway yeah. through. We should say that he didn't tape a lion's roar. He wouldn't have had that facility. <laughs> the lion's roar is a, an effect well known for yeah. stage and screen. It's a kind of instrument. I think it's a handle a a turn, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Percussion yeah. instrument, yeah. It's a bit like horror film music, but obviously well, so ahead of its time because this is 1921. So That's interesting you should say that because... Zappa said, if you want to know what, if you want to hear how influential Varese's music was, listen to any modern horror, horror film, film. Yeah. Or, or, any, or any horror TV series from, you know, from the 50s and 60s onwards. And he said, and if you hear that thing where you hear like a sustained chord and like sort of odd percussion noises, he says, that's Edgar Varese. That's the influence of Edgar Varese, yeah. Yeah, and it's so vivid. So I don't know if that's just because I was kind of projecting my knowledge of of horror film music and horror films onto it, but, you know, it does feel like something's creeping up on you. Like, he creates this atmosphere in the music with these sounds that we recognise from the real world. You know, these are it's not just acoustic instruments. It's kind of really sort of, well, just these really kind of arresting sounds that we associate with, with real things. Yeah. So then, not so long later, about 10 years later, Later, ionization is written and that's yeah. just for percussion that's right so it's for percussion alone very that's big the one, drums that's the one that turned the head of the young frank zappa yeah. yeah 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 very large drums it says on the lineup there's a whip in there yeah lions roar as well uh, sirens in that as well so you know eat your heart out stravinsky with your violins and your 
Well, yeah, he's, he's going to places. They, he's going to places <laughs> even the even Schoenberg and Webern didn't go, isn't he? Very he is. Too. Yeah, yeah. He spoke to the New York Telegraph around this time, and he said, "Our musical alphabet must be enriched. We need new instruments very badly. Musicians mm. should take up this question in deep earnest with the help of machinery specialists. I've always felt the need for new mediums of expression in my work." I refuse to submit myself only to sounds that have already been heard. What I'm looking for are new technical mediums which can lend themselves to every expression of thought and can keep up with thought. So he wanted to expand the composer's palette. He was interested in the way that sound reflected our, our actual real lives and our environments. And I guess at the time, these were rapidly changing as well, weren't they? Because this is the yeah. beginning of the 20th century and, and far more kind of frenetic urban environments but it also feels like he was imagining electronic music before it was even possible you know wanting musicians to collaborate with mm. with machine people who are engineering machines yeah and he must have felt so frustrated in that because he had these sounds in his head that he wanted to realize but yeah. not the kind of ability and and the, the technology yeah. to do it interestingly in the 30s, he applied, but without success, to the Guggenheim and Bell Telephone Company. He wanted research grants to try and establish some devices that could kind of electronically mm. synthesise these sounds that he was imagining. And eventually, of course, you know, these arrived, didn't they? And in his 60s and 70s, he came out of retirement to fulfil his dream and, and write music for electronic musicians. Yeah. But what he did do at the height of his career in doing this, in, in incorporating all these different sounds and, and writing in the way that he did, he kind of shifted the focus in music from form and structure to rhythm and pitch. Yeah. And he took this really radical approach to sound and texture. And that's what we see in the work of his protégés like Parker and Zappa. Uh, and then, of course, contemporary and avant-garde and ambient composers as well. So when you listen to Amérique and, and Ionization, and I was just saying, you know, you can imagine like things creeping up on you and it's vivid. It paints these really kind of vivid pictures. The form is driven by the changing pitch and sonority and timbre, you know, as opposed to, I guess, classic symphony or, or sonata form, uh, traditional symphonic or, yeah. or sonata form. Um, and then with the incorporation of these sounds from everyday life, he's bringing the atmosphere of the sound of our environment into the music. And so I guess what, you know, what Cage did with 433 is the next kind of logical step of uh, inviting the environment into music. And we yeah. see this later in work by um, ambient composers and people like Morton Feldman and, um, you know, those minimalists as well. Morton Feldman actually said to John Cage, Verez connects me to the direct impact of the sound without letting it become a symbol. Yeah. So that's Edgar Verez, very much kind of standing on the shoulders of people like Debussy and Stravinsky, but also directing the paths of those visionaries who would follow. And just to finish, I read a really lovely piece. It was by Gillian Moore, who's head of music at the South Bank. Um, she was writing about about Verez. And it's an anecdote, actually, from Ralph Rugoff, Rugoff I think it is, who was director of the Hayward Gallery. Uh, he used to live in the same block as Verez in Greenwich Village. And um, one night, the water mains burst and everyone was kind of rushing out onto the street and the firemen were there. And Verez came rushing out in his dressing gown and he was standing in the middle of the street as all this kind of chaos was unfolding. And he just was like, listen to the rhythm of it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's yeah, the person he yeah. was. And if you want to know where Frank Zappa thinks you should start, he recommends the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's yeah. uh, performance of Arcana. With Boulez. Played, he says, at full volume. Okay. And the other ones, as Elizabeth said, Ionization, America, his other 
are usually the big tunes, yeah. Yeah, so, no, um, you're right. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra, they, uh, Pierre Boulez is, is conducting, and it, it, those, okay. are, those are the good top recordings. So our notable exception... We've, yeah, we've actually got a notable exception today. Two weeks running, we've prepared one in advance. This is starting to look horribly like forward planning <laughs> notable exceptions where we try and bring you a one-off of some sort and there may be some controversy about this i feel do you remember our planner so good that planner we should put the planner up on social we media lived and again. died by that planner the no. planner is the planner is a series of post-it notes on the table in jeff's garden and then it ran out and we've not had one since have we no but our notable exception for this week as i say some people might dispute this but you've found yeah. them, haven't you well apparently mars tapes is the kind of first and last tape shop cassette tape shop in the uk it's when you say te- the a- last that's rather preempting well anyone else making one isn't it it's the only one so far we think isn't it yeah it's the only one so far well i guess it's like the saying it's the first because it's part of this tape renaissance and mm. also perhaps the last because maybe there used to be loads and now there's only this one <laughs> anyway I, I i don't remember there being cassette only shops ever I, mean, right, so okay. I think we're on maybe on good ground saying this is a this is a shop. This is the first. Only, this is yeah. a shop that only, only. sells cassettes. Cassettes, it? yeah, it's the first tape only tape. And where is it? Cassette. It's in Affleck's Palace in Manchester. And it's called what? Mars Tapes. Right. It's run by a group of three friends. They also have a tape cassette only label called Sour Grapes. Right. And they've already recently upgraded to a bigger space in Affleck's Palace. You can get everything from Elvis to Wham, Simple Minds, Simon and Garfunkel. There's a, a Mank music-only shelf, of course. Right. And also in the corner, there's a stool. And is this right? It's a Kuma cassette player, a 2241. Maybe that's getting a bit technical. I, I, I'm sure there'll be some people me. who not, understand. I'm not familiar with cassette decks. Do they sell pencils for you to put in and wind back all the tape when it's caught on <laughs> the machine? Because that's an essential cassette kit. And tape yeah. as well for sellotaping them up. Also, this is interesting. So there's also a new music shelf as well. Right. I read an article about it. In the article, they described they describe all these kind of new, unopened, just newly released tapes from people like Bjork, Florence and the Machine, Louis Capaldi. Right. So major labels are releasing stuff on cassettes. They are. Now, the guys who ran it, they said that they got the idea to start the label, first of all, and then the shop, because they used to do tour merching sometimes. You know, they must have gone on tour with bands. And they said that if ever there was a CD next to a cassette, they they thought people would more often than not go for the cassette. Really? Yeah, that's what they said in the interview. I certainly wouldn't. But there you go. Yeah. You can get in touch with them and tell us about this. I mean, I would not I would have thought most people don't have a cassette. I've got one in my car. Except hipsters. It is, we should say, in Manchester's northern quarter. That is very important yeah. to stress, I think. I think a cassette-only shop in Lyme Regis would not do very well. <laughs> or maybe it would because it's people with old... I mean, I'm not saying everyone in Lyme Regis has got old cars, but they said apparently they're, you know, a lot of their customers are people who've got old cars as well because I've got an old car that's got a cassette player in it. I think it might be a CD player, actually. Yeah, I think Sorry. it's a CD player. Yours really is. <laughs> so... Well, let us know, though, if you think there's another cassette shop in Britain or let's say Mars Tapes in Affleck's Palace is the only one. The thing is, also, cassettes are cheaper than vinyl, obviously. Yeah, but they people, be, they you know, it's a, sound it's a kind of, Yeah. It's a. Cl- it's <laughs> a cl- oh, producer's shouting the rubbish. <laughs> the only people who think it's worth buying or bringing back cassettes must be too young to remember just how bloody rubbish they were. They'd spew out and get chewed up. You could never find which track you wanted. It's this kind of retro fetishization for no good purpose. Sometimes the things are consigned to history for good reason and good riddance to them. 
This is a first appearance, by the way, for producer uh, Jeff. Producer Jeff, yeah. But do you know what? Actually, I would far rather listen to a tape on like a Walkman than I would a CD because Why? CDs are jumping all over because they're jumping all over the place, aren't they? If you go running with your CD Walkman, then it's you, and you, also you can't you take go running with your CD Walkman. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that if you did, if we, if it's a choice between these two mediums for that purpose, then. You then the cassette with, wins, doesn't I, it? <laughs> I hate to be an advocate of streaming music, but are you familiar with the iPod and beyond? iPod. Are you into the kind iPod. of Wrigley, 1980s Wrigley's commercial with roller skates on it Stuart, and CD Walkman? I, no one has an iPod anymore. Oh, that's what I'm saying, but who's got a CD Walkman? Anyway. Wow. I, do you know Britain's only iPod shop? Anybody can tell us about that? Get in touch with us at NotablePod. <laughs> Well, the, tape, we, the tape will never jump on you, will it? Well, I'm sure this will spark a lot of debate. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss um, now come with me now okay. to 1973 mm. what was the state of Britain and of David Bowie in 1973 both of them in a little bit of a mess okay um, the IRA uh, are bombing mainland Britain there are shortages of all kinds of essential goods Prices are through the roof. There's a vi- uh, there's a petrol shortage, which did in fact lead to a vinyl shortage, which anyone said. There's a three day week. The miners are on strike. There's no electricity and stuff like this. Britain it feels a very bleak place. And David Bowie, in the middle of all this, has just come off a long and grueling tour for his Ziggy Stardust uh, album and Aladdin Sen and Hunky Dory, which he's he's retired the Ziggy character. But he's come off this tour. He's had a quite a long stint of, of travel through Russia. And he's in a very curious frame of mind, Bowie, at this point. He is increasingly paranoid because of his uh, drug use. Now, Elizabeth and I lead lives of almost blameless moral <laughs> rectitude. We're Dogs almost and Netflix. monastic <laughs> in our lifestyles. But I gather that extensive <laughs> use of cocaine can make you somewhat paranoid and edgy. And this is where Bowie is, I think, at this point. And he's becoming more and more fixated with authoritarianism, mind control, doublethink, all the things that we think of today as Orwellian. And so he is absolutely ripe for, as indeed a lot of musicians were, Stevie Wonder, John Lennon, a lot of people went to Orwell's 1984, the great novel of authoritarianism, for some kind of inspiration. But no one fell for it quite as hard as Bowie. 
he becomes really obsessed with it. Orwell's book, of course, written in 1948. All he did was, he didn't actually think 84 would have any significance. He just reversed the digits of 1948. And it's about post-war Britain, but it's it's a strange one, really, because it is about totalitarianism. But he even thought that totalitarianism could emerge from the welfare state. It's a strange book, a very melancholy book about what he thought the future of the human race was. But it really chimes uh, with David Bowie, who, uh, who at this point is fascinated by these notions. And later, of course, in the, in the middle of the 1970s, some people say he'll become even more so. He is alleged to have given a Nazi salute at Victoria Station. He was found with Nazi literature in his luggage. He seems to get, these days maybe because of his genius, something of a free pass for this by rock critics. Whereas Can I just say, I, I I know this is going to upset people more than when I said I didn't like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a massive fan of David Bowie. Oof, that will. I know. I know. Well, it's not going to go down well. I feel like he's, he's, he's a bit like, you know, like the royal family or something where they're so part of, our DNA is British people and you can yeah. go, oh, I'm not interested or I'm a Republican or whatever. But then actually when when there's a royal wedding, you're hearing like floods of tears. Well, I am anyway. Then I feel like Bowie's like, he's kind of like that for me. I, I don't, I'm not that, inter- I'm kind, he doesn't really interest me. But really? then when I hear his music in bars or clubs and everyone's singing it, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This well, is amazing. I, I think he's a genius. I think he's one of the handful of geniuses that British music I understand produced. that. But- and he also, he soundtracks so many people's entire lives because he released consistently good records and that's well, so rare isn't it so you know i do i do understand that i i don't know i'm just i don't know i don't agree with what a lot of people think about him though for instance i don't think ziggy stardust is anything like his best record loads of people think ziggy stardust is his greatest record i think that's one of his most ordinary records i think ziggy stardust is the rock fans david bowie record i think his okay. much more interesting stuff is what we'll come on to in a moment my favorite album maybe alongside low is the one that comes out of the failed 1984 musical but yeah, I, I take your point. And people, I, I feel also... like he's more a portal into other worlds. Well, you know, is. like he's more for me that it interests me. Uh, you know, the people who he who he works with interest me. That when when I kind of experience the result, I'm like, mm. what he is? He's a lightning rod. He's a bellwether for other things. So Bowie didn't originate many things, but he did. He looked to Germany and thought. Look at what Kraftwerk and Neuer are doing, and he introduced that into his music. He looked at Eno. Look at what Eno's doing. He was always, even glam in Ziggy Stardust. What he was very good at was spotting trends, I think, from literature, music, art, theatre, fashion, and incorporating that into his music. Um, and I think, and I, yeah, and I think from that point of view, he is, he is a, a, a genius, but I think he's often, he's often, like you said, misrepresented. But he's at this point in his life, he certainly is obsessed with power, with authority uh, and such notions. And uh, as I said, later, you know, later on, this is going to come out in some rather controversial elements of his, his life. But what he decides he wants to do is make a musical of 1984, Orwell's 1984. He told William Burroughs, the writer, in an interview in Rolling Stone, he said, I'm doing Orwell's 1984 on television. That was his idea. Although some people also say he intended it as a West End musical, because but he wasn't allowed, of... was he? He wasn't. He was. His, uh, Orwell's widows prevented him from doing. Well, it. that's right. And he um, was very upset about that. He was. He was. He, he. He. Well, yeah. Let's let's address that right now. I, he said of her. He said, "For a person who married a socialist with communist leaning, she was the biggest upper class snob I've ever met." He said, <laughs> "Good heavens! Put it to music. It was really like that." And I think the idea is that I'm uh, with her. I'm sort of with her. 
I think it was, well, I don't know. I think it's an odd one for a musical, but I think mainly yeah. she was snobbish about rock music and rock musicians and maybe an androgynous, avowedly bisexual rock okay. musician then okay. as well. Because he said about her, he, he said that, you know, she, she said something like, um, they truly troop, troop me off to see Mrs. Orwell, who in not so many words said, you've got to be out of your good. You think I'll turn this over to that, meaning Bowie, as a musical. So I think there was a certain amount of personal animosity oh, right, okay. towards Prejudice. Bowie as well. Yep. So what he does, I mean, he, he says, um, he says, I never wanted to do Diamond Dogs really as a stage musical. I wanted to do 1984. But what he does is he takes the bare bones of this and he makes it into, I think, his most interesting record, Diamond Dogs, which is still a rock record. It sounds like the Rolling Stones at times. And he's certainly in the thrall of Jagger. But all kinds of new ideas are coming in. These ideas about... Um, mass manipulation and fascism. I mean, there's a great quote from Playboy interview he did at the time. He said, rock stars are fascists. Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. Look at him. I think he was as good as Jagger. When he hit that stage, he worked an audience. Good God, he was a media artist. This is a, this is a great quote. People aren't very bright, you know. They say they want freedom, but when they get the chance, they pass up Nietzsche and they choose Hitler because he would march into a room and there'd be music and lights would come on at strategic moments like a rock concert. The kids would get very excited. The girls get hot and sweaty and the guys wished it was them up there. Hitler was a rock mm. and roll experience. Now, that is extraordinary. Well, mm. I mean, controversial. And I think it, there's a lot of truth in that. I think mean, there's a lot of truth. In that. And he's fascinated by that. But he can't do the musical, so he does Diamond Dogs instead, which has a couple of tracks from a failed Ziggy musical. Uh, Rebel Rebel and Rock and Roll With Me. And then I think the bit on side two, which is a masterstroke, is 1984, Big Brother and the chant of the ever skirtling skeletal family. And if you hear 1984, that is definitely from the musical because you can almost, in a funny way, I can, when I hear it, I can almost hear like, see the jazz hands and flashing searchlights and people running about on a stage. It, it, it shouldn't work. A disco musical, because he's, he's very into disco at this point and soul. You can hear that. 1984 sounds like Isaac Hayes. It shouldn't work. It should be, and yeah, it does. It's absolutely brilliant. And um, sadly, though, well, I don't know about sadly, Bowie's 1984 musical would have been interesting. Sonia Orwell dies a few years later, and with yeah. no Sonia to prevent it, uh, the Eurythmics provide a soundtrack <laughs> to a film oh, about 1984, which is terrible. Yeah, okay. So we didn't get a 1984 musical, but we did get Diamond Dogs, which I think might be David Bowie's most interesting and underrated record. So uh, okay. I'm full of that shivery paranoia, ideas about doublethink and fascism and being a rock and roll star as well. And he had to play uh, guitar on it, didn't he? Lead guitar for the first time. So he yeah. practised every day, but then people still thought it was quite scrappy. And is that why it's often referred to as proto-punk? Exactly. Bowie plays the guitar on a lot of it, as well as a brilliant guitarist called Alan Parker. But Bowie plays yeah. guitar because he'd sacked the spiders rather unceremoniously. So Mick Ronson's yeah, gone. Yeah. Woody Woodman's gone. doing his own solo stuff. And yeah. you can hear that proto-punk uh, in, in that sound of him playing. Also, what you can hear is these are a crack band. He gets really probably the best drummer he'd ever had at that point, Ainsley Dunbar. And if you watch the best performance, you can find on YouTube a performance of 1984 on the Dick Cavett show, the American talk show by, by Dick Cavett. You can see him perform 1984 on this with that band, and it's incredible. It really is incredible because they can they can play, and, the, and, and it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And you can imagine... Well, you can imagine what it might have been like as a musical, but we've got a great album from it anyway. 
It was his last glam rock. It's the last of what you could call glam rock. Glam, and, and he jumped ship on glam rock just at the right time. Yeah, there is. You can hear the sort of tide going out of glam in it, but you can hear all the other things beginning to come in. Certainly punk, the stirrings of punk, and his, his fixation with American R&B uh, and disco and soul, which is going to come to fruition with young Americans. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. So check out David Bowie and band playing... 1984 on Dick Carrot's show on YouTube, and also check out the Chicago Symphony Orchestra playing yeah. Arcana, yeah, by Edgar Varese. Indeed. I suppose we should write get round at some point to writing a definite conclusion to outro. the show every week. An outro, yeah. if you will. <laughs> Bye. Instead of just going, see ya. See ya. <laughs> that's what we'll do. Host has ended the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> when Jeff has had enough. If you do want to get in touch with the show, we're on social media and we welcome it. We live for it, in fact. We do, yeah, yeah. Every at, Tuesday I'm there. At Notable Pod. And what's the Instagram again? Notable underscore pod. Next week, something very different. Our first live Notable. Oh, my gosh. We're doing a, we're on a one-stop roadshow, aren't we? We are we're going, going to the to Hinterlands be, Festival. We're going to be at the Hinterlands Festival and we're going to talk about two things with a filmic element, aren't we? You're going to talk about... Johan Johansson and some of his uh, best film scores. Some of his best film scores. And I'm going to talk about the enduring influence, particularly of the music of The Wicker Man. Ooh, so great 1970s horror film. What we need to do is like, you know, when people are on TV, you know, duos and they're presenting awards and you yeah. can tell... They've got, that's like Stuart's bit. And then underneath, like, Elizabeth say this. Oh, do you mean an then... auto-cue? <laughs> an auto-cue, yes. yeah. auto-cue, yeah, that's what we should get, auto-cue. That's the word you're struggling Just towards. These... Yeah. Honestly, it's everywhere these days. It's even more popular than the CD Walkman, the auto-cue. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, Elizabeth's... just for the intros and outros. <laughs> Elizabeth's off to uh, roller skate through the Northern Quarter like Cliff Richard in the Wired for Sound video. <laughs> Listening to Two Unlimited. Honestly, yeah. I would not be out of place here doing that. I'll tell you that. The roads, when they were closed, they were just full of roller skaters with the Walkmans. Bye. See ya. <laughs> The first ever cassette tape only. Is, it, is the Sharp phrase, is the phrase that we're struggling to idea? Britain's only cassette. Britain's first yes, cassette I only shop. So. I think that's the way of saying it, isn't it? Yeah, Britain's it. first cassette only shop. Yeah. <laughs> Britain's only. That's it. It's Britain's only cassette only shop, isn't it? Cassette tape only shop. Right. Two only's in there. Uh, uh, unless we're wrong. Unless we're wrong about that. Which we might be. <laughs> Britain's only first. Cassettes only first shop. <laughs> only. Cassettes first. Cassettes first, it's called. Cassettes only first. <laughs> if only. Britain's only first cassette shop. <laughs> Host has ended the meeting. Right. Notable. The podcast. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 